Welcome to Creative Income, a podcast that focuses on making a living in the creative space. Whether you're an actor, filmmaker, musician, painter, or anything that doesn't fit the nine to five mold, there is value for you here. I'm Lars Lindstrom. Let's get into it. Well, welcome back to Creative Income. My goodness, have I missed you guys, and I am so sorry. I just, uh, man, look at me. Look how pathetic I am. I think it's been, what is it? certainly over four weeks, four or five weeks since I've come out with an episode. And I just, uh, what I have to do, and I think I mentioned this on the last episode, what I have to do is just plan on not being able to do episodes when I do films and pre-record a whole bunch. Um, because yeah, dude, I thought like, yeah, I don't know, like on my days off, I'll record an episode or two. It'll be fine. Like I'll find people in Utah to record and it'll, it'll be a great thing. And that just was not the case. Um, I don't know if you've ever done a, a feature film before, um, especially out of town, but it's really hard and very time consuming. So I apologize. Anyway, that won't happen again. Uh, and that's a promise. That's a Lars Lindstrom guarantee, as I sometimes uh, tell directors, and it means nothing. It's completely a worthless um, gesture of my nothingness. Um, anyway, here I am. I'm back. Um, I'm, I'm happy to be back uh, home. It was seven weeks away from my house. At least I, I my wife and kids came up uh, to visit me for the 4th of July. Um, so we had a week up there with them. And without that, I probably would have gone in absolutely insane but um yeah back home had a little break did you know a couple staycation things and um now I'm, I'm back at it i'm actually about to leave i'm doing some tiny desk series stuff for npr um this week and then i'm, I'm jumping into a commercial for the week after that uh but yeah man life is great actually um made a lot of money the last a couple months on two films, two commercials, and a bunch of rentals. Um, so yeah, things are good. Just got to figure out the tax situation now where we're going to put that money. And I'm looking at buying some more pieces of equipment. So if you have anything in mind, let me know. Um, anything anything coming on the market? Any lenses that you guys are, are looking at that, that uh, seem interesting to you? Just uh, slide into my DMs. Let's let's chat. I'm I'm interested. Um, anyway, uh, what do we got? What else we got going on? Um, Travis Travis Wears is on the podcast. He has. I actually met him through a Facebook group um, called Cine Kit List, and they do group buys and they and and stuff like that. And a really fascinating group. If you want to head over to Facebook Cine Kit List, um, check them out. It's a nice little film community. Um, and where else are we going? Where else are we heading in life? Uh, it's an interesting journey, man. I learned a lot about myself the last seven weeks. I had all this time to just like self-reflect. Um, and I'm trying to think if there's anything I want to share about that other than I learned a lot about myself. Um, probably not actually. Uh, yeah, let's, let's chat. We'll do lunch if you, if you want to, if you want to chat more about it. Um, okay. I think we're good. The house is good. The kids are good. Uh, we got some renovations coming up. And let's jump into Travis's podcast. He he also owns a production company um, that uh, is in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, they're doing great, great things. And I'm happy for him. This is a really fun episode because we also talk about financial literacy near the end. So here we go. Hey, Travis, thanks so much for being on the podcast, man. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Sorry, I was so uh, so wishy washy this last uh, week or two. I just, I like I said, I was on that shoot for seven weeks, and production and just, life is chaos. I think chaos. if you yeah. don't embrace that, you're going to have a really hard time emotionally. <laughs> I feel like I'm a chaotic person. Like uh, I feel like it's a personality trait that I that I've decided not to shy away from. Right where it's like. 
I enjoy and embrace the chaos. And so therefore I feel like I do okay at my job because it's insane all the time. Right. I wonder it's one of those chicken or egg scenarios. It's like, did you, did production life bring, (laughs) draw you in because your chaos is such a good fit or does it, sometimes I feel like it, it's like slowly warps us so slowly. (laughs) It's like one of those things is like you look in the mirror and you can't tell you're aging from day to day, but then Uh you look back on a photo of five years ago and you're like, wait a second, I didn't used to look like this. Sometimes I think production does that to our minds Mm -hmm. slowly. Slow We're just like, yeah, we're insane people. And then we're like, no, I think production maybe made you insane. (laughs) Yeah, it's, I think, I think a little, for me, I think it was mostly that I I had like a more like spontaneous, chaotic personality beforehand. And so as I kind of like was exploring the world of production, it just drew me in because it was so different and chaotic from a day-to-day basis. And And there's a place where your, your chaos allows you to thrive rather than get you kicked out of the bar. (laughs) before midnight <laughs> or the nine to five you know right. I, I could see a world where my my chaotic uh mentalities could could not do well in a nine to five uh, so, no yeah. and very few of us would ever make yeah. it a year without getting fired from absolutely like a full-time job you know? yeah i agree well hey there's a there's a, there's a space for everybody and right. and we're we're happy that you're also in the space travis would you mind just uh telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do Totally. So my name is Travis Weirs. Uh, I am a freelance DP, and then I run a production company called Weirs TV out of Kansas City, Missouri. So I'm right in the middle of the country. We do a lot of you know documentary type work, corporate work, commercials, sports, and then you know on the side I have this little side hustle where I put together group buys for one of my partners, Autorama. It's called Cine Kit List. And then I also own some rental properties and I got a baby on the way. And, you know, I just got a couple of balls in the air at the moment. Yeah, just a couple. It sounds like sounds like you're not busy at all. Um, I want to talk to you about the production company first off um, and, and how that got started, what it looks like in Kansas City. Uh, are you profitable when you were profitable, that kind of stuff. So how'd you get started in, in the production company? Weird. That's a that's a great question. You know, it, I kind of fell into it, I think. Um, maybe it was similar. My chaos sort of, you know, I, we, we found a way I, I used to, I was a singer in a rock band for a long time, you know, in my early twenties and went to college kind of to study, to be a writer, tried the ad agency thing as a copywriter and was like, holy hell, like, I hate this. I hate this copy. I hate these clients. Uh-huh. Like this is, is not going to work for me. And so I went out and bought a, um, a Canon T2i on a Nebraska Furniture Mart credit card wow. and pop, popped open some YouTube videos. I was 29. I'd never touched a camera before. Popped open some YouTube videos. Do you, um, remember, do you remember when it was – if it was the year the T2i came out? Was it like right when it was announced? Well, it was 2009. Yeah. Yeah, same, dude. That, our stories so far are completely paralleled. So that's fun. I heard you talking about the T2I on another uh-huh. podcast. I listened okay, to, yeah. so I had to bring that up. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, taught myself what Aperture and was, had no idea what the hell that was. And, you know, just started messing around. And a, a couple of years later, I was, you know, traveling the world, you know, shooting commercials. That simple? Well... The short version is that simple. Yeah, let's let's break into the the long, just a little bit longer, because um, I because I just don't know that um, that's everybody's experience. You know, buy a TTY and then travel the world two years later. So, what did you do that you think was different 
than a lot of other people that uh, own DSLRs. Because I think I think everybody just got a DSLR. Everybody wants to do video and photo. Right. So what did you? What did you? What was the hustle like? What was the failure like to start traveling the world two years later? Man, failure. Mm-hmm. I don't think there. I don't think there's any success story that doesn't involve a considerable amount of failure. Yeah. I mean, mine does. That's the hardest part of it. But I think those are the, those are the moments you grow the most. Yeah. Was there any, you know? any moment in mind or anything come to mind in particular? Oh my God. <laughs> so many. Um, one of the first, so I'll, I'll try to do a quick one here. Yeah. Um, one of my first kind of bigger clients, a church contacted me and they were like, Hey, we do regular videos. We're looking to buy like a, a big video package for our church and we need some help in like, you know, someone to kind of run it for us. Um, basically doing videos with the pastor in between services, just, you know, breaking down his adventures. Cause he was like a bicyclist, a mountain climber, did all these stuff. And so the very first video we did <clears throat> was he was, he was interviewing um, a Muslim friend of his and they were just talking about religion in general. It was a big interview for them and me. And this guy was literally going back to the Middle East the next day. We, we, I had a Panasonic AF 100 that I bought, set up this huge, set up all the lights myself, you know, sound myself, camera myself, shot this interview. I was so proud of it and went to edit it and I pulled it up and no sound. (laughs) And I'm like, huh? And I, I learned the hard way that that Panasonic AF100, when you had it in like um, like overcranking mode, you could if it was in 24p, you could see like the audio meters running, and you could hear the audio in your headphones, oh, but it didn't actually stick to the card. So it was a little oh, bit of a camera flaw, but no. also it was that taught me like always roll a clip and play it back to make sure because this was like a four-hour interview, oh, and the no. dude was gone by the time I found out and I had to go back to this church and this whole, it was supposed to be the beginning of like a beautiful long relationship. And the very first video I was like, dudes, you guys just spent like $25,000 on gear and hired me to go do this interview. And, uh, I got no audio. Wow. And what was the response? They were, um, unhappy, <laughs> but you know, they were, they ended up moving past it. We worked together for many years afterwards. <laughs> But yeah, that was one of those. I've had a couple of those moments where you just you pull the footage up and something that you missed did not did not go well, and that's not a good feeling. No, no, it's not. Yeah, I was I was a wedding videographer for many years when I first started out, and uh, and I cannot tell you this the gut wrenching feeling that I got every time I formatted a card I wasn't supposed to. And, um, you know, it's like, and you don't, you don't, of course you don't realize it until like it's shot on the next wedding and then you go pull that previous wedding up to like edit and you just go, I don't have half a ceremony here. <laughs> I want to hear, I want to hear how you, how you handled that. Did you tell them or did you just try to kind of, I, I tried to hide it as much as possible. I think I only, I only had to tell one client, I, I probably did 60 weddings or something over my career. And I, and I probably only had to tell one client, like, look guys, I just, I think I told them that a card corrupted <laughs> like, yeah. and I couldn't recover something like, that. I probably lied just to, to try to cover, you know, some, some sort of, uh, of, semblance of whatever, but, um, yeah, man, it was tragic. Um, and it happened uh, unfortunately more than one time. And, uh, and you just, you kind of learn, man, from those, those lessons. And, and now I'm just like, I'm at the point now where I, I'm not offloading my own stuff. So I don't really deal right. with it anymore, but, um, but yeah, that's just like, oh, man, the lessons you learn, just like doubling and tripling up your backups and, 
but um but yeah so it's so, okay so you've you you've you're starting out you're learning all these valuable lessons like sound is important um and uh talk to me about how you were able to reach out to some of those first co- uh, clients and and book video gigs and what the numbers look like starting out yeah great questions um so you know, you start off, you're kind of PAing, you're kind of ACing, you're kind of shooting, you're kind of hopping on and trying to be a camera op. You don't really call yourself a DP. You don't really even know what you want to be one, but you're not even really sure what one does. At yeah. least that was me. Um, you know, a lot of the reason why I kind of became a shooter weirdly was just because I was finding it really hard to move up in the ranks in Kansas city here. Um, it's a pretty small insular community, um, I think it's a little more open now that some of the guys my age are sort of in charge, but mm-hmm. you know, at the time, you know, hustling hard here, just kind of put a target on your back for the guys who were like, didn't want to give up their hours. Yeah. And so I didn't, I wasn't able to find like a mentor who would kind of like take me under their wing and like help me. So I sort of had to skip a lot of like the larger production stuff that was going here and just run off and, you know, shoot, shoot fitness videos for like the local yoga studio and there had a lot of you know craigslist jobs back this is like 2009 2010 those early days you used to be able to get video jobs on craigslist yeah i, mean, I remember i i got a couple of them yeah and some of them led to you know like opportunities where i would be working with these clients for years mm-hmm. later mm-hmm. i mean i think so much of it is taking advantage of the opportunities that you do have i mean I was the kind of guy that would shoot, you know, 10 hours and then come home and then pull up, you know, Philip Bloom review and spend two hours watching that and just constantly trying to get constantly trying to get better, you know, because my livelihood depended on it. And it was interesting. Yeah. It was a golden age too. Like we, I, I I think the DSLR boom really shook up the entire industry. And, and uh, from my, my experience anyway, was that I, I was able to bypass a lot of like the traditional production stuff and still have good looking footage. And, um, so I was able to get clients, you know, footage looked great, sounded great. Um, that would have cost them 10 times as much if they had gone through a production company, Yeah, you know, and, and, uh, and that was just like the result of, you know, a changing like camera economy essentially. Um, so what's the market like in Kansas city? You know, there's some ad agencies here. There's we got a couple of professional sports teams. Um, there's a couple of big, you know, corporate companies, uh, medical stuff. Uh, I I haven't really, you know, since the pandemic to jump super far ahead. You know, I've been working more here because travel's been more limited. But most of my career, I've just been kind of traveling the country and mm. even internationally in order to find work. And mm. that's, um, that's great. I work some here in KC for sure, you know, and I definitely rent out a lot of gear to, you know, the other um, crew in town, but yeah. Um, How did you know what to charge starting out? That's a great question too. I don't, I think that's a trial by fire, trial by error thing for just about Mm -hmm. everybody. You know, I see in some Facebook groups, new people coming along all the time saying, what do you guys charge? And what I always want to kind of, like I think we should anywhere be anywhere between three hundred dollars and thirty thousand. Totally. Yeah, yep. <laughs> totally. How long is this string? Right. Yeah, right? Yeah. You know, it's just like, well, are you? Do you have twelve? I can tell you what I charge, but do you have twelve years? 
of experience. You have $200,000 worth of production right. equipment, yeah. you know, in your studio. It's like, yeah. it's good to be transparent about rates mm -hmm. because I think I believe in being open and encouraging to the people who can't, who are coming along behind you. And I don't believe in trying to shut them out or exclude them you know, or gatekeeping because that yeah. happened to me and it wasn't fun. <laughs> but at the same time, like you're going to start off doing jobs for 300 and then you're going to get to the point where you're like 300 ain't enough to go out and do what I've been doing. And then you're going to move it to 500 mm -hmm. and the same thing's going to happen until the point where, you know, you hit a place where most of the time when someone calls me now, it's pretty open conversation. And if it's not, it's a little bit of a warning sign. Absolutely. Like the they asked me, yeah. they asked me my rate and they don't want to like give me any budget info. Usually what I'm assuming is they're hoping I'm going to low ball so they can walk away and scoop off the top. Mm -hmm. You know, Which happens. what I'm, yeah. what I'm usually asking is like, what is this project like worth for you guys? Like, what have you guys budgeted for this? That way I know like what kind of resources I can bring in because, right. um, I want to know what their expectations are for mm -hmm. me rather than just tea treating every project like, hey, no, it's this much to do this. It's this much. It's like it doesn't really work like that. That's right. Yeah. So at what point did you so – you're, you're doing these videos. You're doing some yoga videos. Maybe you're charging 1200 bucks for like a polished, finished thing. At what yep. point do you say, let's, uh, let's start a company. Let's start a little production company. I think it just got to the point where, you know, I had a couple clients that I was doing just soup to nuts, kind of creative. I'd sit in on creative, I'd shoot it, I'd direct it, I'd cut it or I'd oversee the cutting. And eventually it's like, well, I'm basically a production company, mm -hmm. you know, I want to get better at that so that I can, when, when someone comes to me and says, hey, can you do this? I'm like, well, what else do you need? You know what I mean? And when you can control like the whole product also, I mean, gosh, I'm sure you've been on projects where you were like, damn, that looked good when you shot it. And then you saw the cut and you were like, what the hell? What the <laughs> what holy do I do? hell? <laughs> what right. do I do to this? Who graded this thing? <laughs> exactly. Did you they know, grade this thing? <laughs> fire this, fire them immediately. Did they just leave the log? Like what is, what is happening here? Yeah. Uh, have you ever just had that happen where you're so excited to share a project yeah, yeah, and then you can't time, even well, put it on Facebook because well, it looks so bad? More, more than once but because um, of the grade. But uh, but one time, they literally didn't do a grade from the log footage. So I shot on the Ari Alexa, which is like the classic. was just the log file. was just the grayest, muddiest piece of shit you've ever seen in your life. And um, And then they, you know. <laughs> they released it with that. It was like a music video outside in the woods too. So I was like expecting all these like bright tree leaves and stuff. And, and it just, it just fell super flat. So that was a bit of a bummer for me, but uh, all the time where I get something back and go, what's with the magenta on this? What's with the, why are they pushing that blue? Whatever. It's like, and that happens all the time. Yeah. Unfortunately. It's interesting. Cause you're, you're, you would assume that even if the editor like maybe wasn't like a grading expert, that someone along the way would look at that and say something like, Hey, are you sure this is right? <laughs> but the fact that like those things pass through <sighs> multiple people's hands and get approved right. makes you wonder like who are, 
who some of the people were working with are how yeah. they got those jobs. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you want more control is what you're saying. So you start a production company because you want soup to nuts, just kind of beginning to end, final delivery. You want the creative control all the way through. Um, and what does that look like for you? Are you profitable immediately because you've got the equipment now? Or to, mm-hmm. you know, talk to me about some of those some of those early beginnings of starting. Yeah, a great question. Company. You know, so much of it is like a slow climb. You know, uh, were we profitable? I mean. I was always profitable. How profitable I think is like, you know, what changed the most because when you're living in a, you know, $500 a month, two bedroom junkie apartment in Midtown and you've got a Canon and a couple of lenses, you don't really have like a ton of overhead. Yeah. You know, so it didn't I can't, cost. I can't rent a van for that much in Los Angeles. Just so you right, know. right, right. Well, this was a while ago. Okay, good. But you know, you don't have much overhead, and so you know, I was profitable almost from the very beginning, but it wasn't a lot of money. I mean, I th- when someone asks me, you know, I'm thinking about becoming a cam op or a freelance DP or whatever. One of the first things I say is, you know, give yourself at least two years before you start really making any decisions on whether it's going well for you. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I don't know that I, that I had that same experience. I, I felt pretty maybe naively confident starting uh-huh. out. <laughs> like, and it wasn't, it was certainly a naivety. You know what I mean? It was just like, I think the first year I was freelance, I probably made 35 grand or something like that. And I was sure. like, we've made it. You know, this right. is like, yeah, 12 totally. years ago, kind of at the same point. I was just like, I did it, man. Like, that's right. like what I'd make in a nine to five from graduate college. Sure. So like, this is perfect. And, um, you know, and things change, obviously. But uh, um, for me, it was the the key was owning equipment. Um, totally. And I would, I would make the cash from a job mm. and then I would put it towards equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is before I even knew about any tax advantages or anything. I was mm-hmm. just really dumb at the time. But I just realized that like, I, I could make it look better. I could charge a little bit more. I could, mm-hmm. it would unlock these things for me and, and clients would appreciate it. So I, I learned very early on that um, by putting money back into the business, so I'd make a little money, put it back into the business, buy another lens, buy another camera, buy a tool, mm-hmm. this thing, that thing. Um, you know, f- flash forward 12 years later and and I've got, you know, three trucks and, you know, four camera packages and six sets of lenses and, all you know, all the way down the line, but um, and it's for many, many different reasons now for me than it, I think when I was starting out. But talk to me about um, you mentioned two hundred thousand dollars of production equipment, something like that. Talk to me about why that was important to you and how you figured that out. Yeah, I mean, I think you know our paths are pretty parallel in that sense. You know, you're shooting on shooting on the T2I, then I got my hands on that AF100, and you know the dynamic range. I mean, the dynamic range on that camera was just garbage. And you'd be outside and just get shit blown out everywhere. It was really frustrating. And so, and you're just looking at people and you're looking at stuff that other people are shooting online and you're just like, eh, this isn't really <laughs> like that good. So, you know, from there, I think I bought a Canon C100 and just, yeah, I think every year I bought a new camera and I've put a lot of money towards lighting and just started to notice okay, I'm building some momentum. It's like the ball's rolling down the hill. Yeah. And now all of a sudden I've got more gear. 
I can charge more to my clients. And that, I'm and was it, was more. it just that? Was it, were you able to charge more because of the gear or were you able to charge more because you had the experience both? Talk to totally. About that. Yeah. yeah, both. I think they go hand in hand, don't mm-hmm. they? Yeah. Not, not only do you have the gear rental, which is such a crucial part of my business model, but you also have the experience you know what I mean? And the time in. And so when those situations come, which always come, the speed bumps, the roadblocks, the bottlenecks that we run into on set, you know how to handle it and you can handle it without, you know, destroying your day. And I think those are, those are big, those are big moments. What's been the greatest ROI for you in terms of equipment? Has it been camera, uh, lenses, lighting, talk, production? You know, that's a good question. So I, running Cine Kit lists, you know, I, it's a, it's, we've got a Facebook group and there's a lot of conversation there and people are always asking each other about gear. And, you know, there's some people who kind of believe in, you know, you rent what you need. And then there's other people like me and yourself who, you know, want to own our equipment. And, you know, uh, I sold my FS seven recently and, you know, I was kind of thinking like, what, what did this camera do for me? And so I sat down and started pulling out numbers and invoices and just kind of getting together like a rough spreadsheet and you know when the kid who bought it for me was asking me about it you know i kind of told him like i was really honest with him i was like you know buying equipment changed my business model let me just tell you about this one piece of equipment so i think i bought it used on like ebay like five years ago for maybe like nine or ten grand Uh (laughs) uh-huh you know, probably made just on camera rentals from like my rough estimates, somewhere between 200 and 250,000 over five years <laughs> and then sold it for 3,500, you know, a few months ago. <laughs> so who cares what you sell for? You could give it to this kid and you, your ROI still would have been 25 X, right. you know, whatever. And also, you know, was able to get the tax break on, you know, year one, which is, I think, you know, something that's really important for people coming in is as your business is growing, you need to be looking for intelligent ways to continue growing the business while also reducing your tax liability. That's right. And buying equipment is one of those ways. Do you do primarily 179 tax deductions or do you do you uh, price out over many years? I, 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 I. Um, deduct everything full price year yeah. year one yep. because next year I'm going to buy another That's whatever. Right. Yeah. What about yeah, you? Same. Yep. Same. One seventy nine. Yeah. For most of my big uh, equipment purchases. Yeah. Um. That's great, man. That's really incredible. I'm trying to think. My my probably my biggest ROI. Um. It's probably been my Amira when I bought my I bought my Amira for thirty seven thousand dollars probably four years ago and I and I've I, I've probably made over 200 grand on that as well. So, so yeah. tell me a little bit about answer one question for me. Sure. So when you bought the, the Amir for 37,000, I'm guessing now you think about 37,000 and you're just like, yeah, whatever. But at the time, was that a challenge? Terrifying. Yeah, it was terrifying, yeah. dude. Um, I bought a cash at the time. It was before I was doing financing for equipment. Um, and it was like, and I bought it from a guy in New York that I didn't know. Like I vetted him, you know, I was like, okay, we've got six mutual friends. They're all filmmakers. I hit up some of them. Like, is this guy, do you know this guy? Yeah, I worked with him on a commercial, whatever. Um, so I wired him $37,000 and three days later, um, you know, a FedEx package arrived and it was my mirror and it was like, but it was absolutely terrifying. And just the concept of $37,000 cash for something. 
Um, and but it changed. It totally changed. Like because I had an Alexa Classic before that, which was good, but it was like a learning curve for me. And like I maybe bought the camera before I actually deserved it in terms of where I was in my career. But I, it was. It had to have been at least five years ago that I bought the Samira. But uh, anyway, um, but it totally. It just like everything took off from there. And um, the la- the last five years have been absolutely crazy. And I've shot since you know in the last five years twenty five feature films and probably wow. countless commercials and documentaries and blah 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 blah. But uh, and you know and each time I do each time I do a film it's at least seven thousand dollar rental for that camera you know right. at the very least and then and up from there. And so, yeah, it's just, it's been, uh, it's, it's been my, my probably, and then second for me was probably uh, grip and electric and, and not just, um, stands and lights, but by putting it on wheels was the ticket for me. Once I, once I started putting them in vans and trucks, mm-hmm. then that's where it's just like the ROI was insane. Mm-hmm. I, I paid off my, my second van, including the van, including the equipment that went in it in six months. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It was insane. It's incredible. It's interesting how, you know, I think that first, when you, when you threw down 37,000, that was a risk, Mm -hmm. but it becomes less of of a risk as you develop and hone your tactics and techniques around, you know, purchasing this equipment. Like when you bought that, even though you you might not have known you were going to pay that off in six months, but you weren't worried I when you bought that van, right? Because you had established, you know, a working business model that you had faith in. And I think that's, you know, such a key to, you know, growth. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to me about the city kit list and, and tell me what it is. Uh, I, I think this is interesting. Actually, this is how I met you was um, you reached out to me because of city kit list. You're trying to, to grow it. And, and I wanted to talk about it a little bit because I, I think it's fascinating as well. So what is it and, and what do you hope for it? Yeah, so Cinekit List is something that kind of just uh, like my DP career just kind of happened by accident. I was looking for a deal on these digital Sputnik lights, these DS1s, mm. and you know, I'd seen some people putting together group buys on Red User. I contacted that company and kind of put together my group buy. It was a really rough shot. It was a lot of work. It ended up being successful and company started kind of well, not quite then yet. I was looking for, I was going out and hustling. Like I'd be at NAB when I'd be talking to people about gear that I wanted to own for my company. And I'd see like, hey, how can I get a little bit of a break on this? I'm not a rental house. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not the kind of person that can call up like BNH or Adorama and command an instant discount. I know there are people like that, but I'm not one of them. (laughs) And so how can I, you know, save a little bit of money on this? And so, you know, I started working with these different companies and putting together group buys on gear that I wanted to own for my business. And I saw that putting this gear into the hands of my peers was impacting them in the same kind of way that it impacted my business. And I just love, I mean, I want to sound too cheesy, but I like giving back to the community in that way and providing those opportunities for people. Yeah. That's what this and podcast is all about too. It's just giving totally. Back. Yeah. Like exploring financial literacy and talking about things that don't always get talked about is so important. Yeah. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Oh, of course. Anyway. So, uh, the, the, the group buys were getting bigger and bigger and, you know, red user without red user, shut them down. 
and for everybody. And I just thought, saw it as my opportunity to continue. I was like, first of all, I was like, Oh shit, how am I going to do these? I still want to, you know, I have people who are hitting me up saying like, Hey, when's the next one coming? And so I was like, you know, I'm just going to start my own little group. And I, I started it, um, February, 2020. So it was a little bit of an odd time. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty in the world. And as we all know, March was like total was when the chaos started, Yeah. but you know, we've at city kit list the goal is just to put quality gear into the hands of filmmakers at a little bit of a discounted price and to provide a community where we can talk about the kind of stuff we're talking about here not only about is this light a piece of shit or is it you know brilliant but this kind of thing you know taxes and write-offs and like what to charge and who to rent to that kind of thing i love it man Uh, are you are you prop? Are you making money on this? Like, is there, is there, uh, do you get a break from, you know, people that you do group buys with? Talk to me about some of the finances behind it if you can. Yeah, sure. So, you know, every deal's a little different, you know, right now, for instance, like a lot of group buys aren't really happening because, you know, so many manufacturers are bottlenecked with their, in their supply yeah. chains. Right. And it's not just production. It's like the whole world. You look at, um, there's a housing shortage. There's, there's not cars on the lots. Mm-hmm. I mean, lumber went up, you know, 8X, you know, last year. Every, you know, I was in Ikea with my partner yesterday. We were walking around and there's just like, no lighting, no curtains, no silverware. It's just, and I'm thinking, okay, this isn't computer chip related, right? They're not putting computer <laughs> chips in silverware. Where the hell is the silverware? Yeah. You know, because every, every time something's like not on the shelf, someone's oh, like, it's what's the, the microchip? It's, it's the, the microchips. Yeah. Have you heard yeah. it's the microchips? I'm like, I, I didn't know they were putting microchips in my forks. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so everybody's having problems. Uh-huh. So, you know, one way we pivoted, not to sound too much like a commercial, one way we pivoted to, to stay like active in the group was I started doing these carts where a custom discount, let's say you're, you're looking to buy a lens package and some lights, you put it in your cart, just like you would, you email it to me, I take it to my team and I'm like, Hey, this person's in my group. What can we do for them? Hmm, And where I'm able to sort of back when I said, Hey, I'm not a rental house. How can I get like a five or 10% or a 15% break on my larger purchases? This is how, you know what I mean? We try to give, those we should we try to give our customers our members our friends the same opportunities that people who own you know a large production house and might be buying you know 10 times the amount of gear that they are um if that makes any sense yeah no it does that's awesome so do you get kickbacks yeah i get it's it's kind of like an affiliate job at times mm-hmm. there are times where i make more than others you know there are times where i relinquish any just to make the deal happen yeah you know and then it's not syndicateless isn't just about the money for me uh i've made so many relationships with people in the industry yeah um lighting manufacturers, wireless manufacturers, monitor people, batteries, like just talking to the people who run these companies, a lot of them who are a lot smaller than people would realize as far Mm. as like the teams hearing like their challenges of how they're making this stuff, getting a look behind the scenes at like the production of this equipment and the sales like is fascinating to me. So just being a part of that world is like almost payment enough. Yeah. That's great, man. I, I'm excited uh, for for the future of Cinecutlist. I um, 
I'm I joined the Facebook group. I I definitely am going to take advantage of some of the group buys in the future and and uh and it's it's good to it's good to meet you. Good to know you too cuz I feel like um I yeah, that's that's one thing I don't have a really great relationship with is some of the manufacturers that I buy an enormous amount of equipment with. And um and by establishing some of that might be I think beneficial for everyone. Yeah, there's there's a certain piece of it that's like you know I'm partnered with Adorama right now. Mm -hmm. And so all our deals run through them and, you know, guys like you who drop a lot of money at these places, like not that I want to become like a sales rep. I don't, you know, but I, I almost become like a, the de facto guy that answers these questions. I mean, I get Instagram and Facebook messages that like, I'll be laying in bed about to go to bed and I'm getting like, <laughs> you know, where's, Hey, when can you ship me this? Or, Hey, what does this piece of equipment go with this? And it's like, as much as sometimes it's like, Oh shit, come on, man. I'm trying, I'm trying to live my life. <laughs> There's a part of it. That's like companies just don't have the ability to give the kind of customer service that customers like you and myself, like really desire, I think. Yeah. And when I can step in and be like when you ask a question or, and you know, it's going to get answered and not just like ignored, you know what I mean? Like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that becomes like a really important part of just like, Hey, I, I want to know if this is in stock and I don't want to call the customer service line. Cause I don't know if I'm going to get a straight answer or whatever, or they're just going to say, look on the website. Mm -hmm. It's like, I know there's someone in there that can get to the bottom of this for me. And it's like, I've kind of become that guy, that sort of intermediary, between some of the manufacturers and Adorama and the customers. And it's like, yeah, I enjoy being able to help people out like that. That's awesome. Um, talk to me, you mentioned financial literacy uh, and I, and we had a brief phone call before the podcast. And so I, I do know that uh, it is on your, on your mind and it's something you've been, you kind of delved into the last uh, few years. And so I want to talk about um, what you're doing for the future um, and, and what else you got going on in your life. What are you, what are you doing financially? Yeah, you know, uh, when I was in my like early mid thirties and I started making a little bit more money, you know, hitting the six figures, um, and then re and realizing like the first time I made six figures, I mean, I grew up in a pretty, you know, relatively poor household, and so I was like, how'd that happen? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I was actually, um, to be honest with you, is it, it was more terrifying than it was thrilling. Oh, interesting. Because I thought uh, I was living in a kind of like a fearful mindset. Like, when mm. is the rug going to get pulled out from under me? Yeah. And now that I've hit this peak, I have even further to fall. Like, when I do <laughs> topple off this peak, I'm going to like really get hurt. And oh, congrats so, on making seven figures, then, Travis. We're happy for you. <laughs> yeah. So for the first like the first couple of years, I was really just like saving like a madman, mm. um, stocking away and just not touching it. And then I got to the point where I started owing a good chunk of change in taxes. taxes. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I'm paying more in taxes than I was making my first few years of like doing this. And so I started, I moved away from TurboTax. I found a tax advisor. I started looking into retirement accounts. And even though I thought, hey, it's too late for me, I'm 35 and I'm just now investing in my first retirement account. Why am I taking this money that I could be using now and putting it in a place that I can't really touch for 30 years? It made no sense to me. Yeah. And so in order to get it to wrap my mind around it, I started reading books on finance and 
you know, through reading those books, like Ramit Sethi's I Will Teach You to Be Rich is a, fin- mm-hmm. a fantastic mm-hmm. book. Yeah, I like that one. And uh, if anybody's listening and you want the book, hit me up and I'll send a, send you a copy on Amazon free of charge. I mean, it's an amazing wow, book. Wow, awesome. Thank you. Let's uh, say the name of the book again for everybody. Ramit Sethi, I Will Teach You to Be Rich. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I give <laughs> – I don't know who, how many people are listening to this, but you know, I usually give like five or 10 of those away every year. And, um, it's an amazing, like starting point for someone who's like, when I hear investing in equities and stocks and crypto and real estate and taxes, like my head spins. Cause I don't really understand sure. like, what, what all this it's stuff It's intimidating. Means. It's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, someone else figured this out for me, right? Like, I don't want to learn like all these definitions. Yeah. Anyway, so it was in reading those types of books and starting to dive into, you know, things like the Bigger Pockets podcast and Paula Mm -hmm. Pants Afford Anything podcast, where I started listening and slowly understanding like what these things meant. I don't know if I answered your question. I, I think I think we're doing it. I think I think this, this is great, man. Yeah, we're talking about financial literacy and, and how you kind of delved into it a little bit. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. So you know, I started off throwing some money into like a, a SEP IRA, mm-hmm. you know, a traditional Roth or traditional, and then I built a SEP IRA for my for for me. Do you have a, both? Yeah. Roth and now a now I so now I have a. I've evolved right now. I have like an individual or a solo 401k mm-hmm. run through my business. Yeah, um, yeah. Are you a S corporation? Yeah, I'm an S corp. You know, Smart. eventually yeah. you get to the point as a, you know, self-employed person where you realize you're paying too much in taxes, you know, and your retirement options are more limited That's than right. they are if you incorporate. And so you hit that point where it's like, okay, it makes sense to incorporate. Now this gives me more options put myself on my own payroll and give me more options to invest and to save on taxes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What about you? No, I traditional. Yeah. I don't have mm-hmm. a Roth. Um, uh, mostly because, and, and through the S corporation, traditional uh, 401k. Um, but uh, I'd like a Roth for this reason. Cause, cause right now it makes sense to offset my taxes. Right. So I max out the 401k mm-hmm. um, so that I don't have to pay taxes on that money. Um, but a Roth is good for the years that maybe you don't make as much money. Right. Cause it is feast or famine. You're going to have years where you just, just are blown away by how much you make. And then you're going to years by your, when you're blown away by how little you make. Right. And, um, and so having a Roth kind of offsets that a little bit. So you don't make as much money. So you owe less in taxes. You put, you max out your Roth because that grows tax-free um, after tax. So, so having both as a freelancer is actually, I think, really intelligent, um, which, I, which I don't do yet, um, which is a good thing because I think what it means is I've been fortunate over the last seven or eight years to have a pretty consistent income and, and a good one at that. So um, yeah, but mostly, mostly what I do, because um, even I what's the max like nineteen five a year or something like that on a four hundred one k. Well, it, uh, for S corporation, it's fifty. That's right. You can do a you can do a business match. Yeah. Look, I, I'm not a tax advisor, and I don't know that I have the numbers in front of me. But basically, one advantage of of the solo four hundred one k is yes, nineteen five is a number like basically like your employee donation as as the employee of the company but yeah. your 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 company can match can a percentage match of your payroll into that so i think it's almost i think you can almost put 50,000 in yeah. if you do the numbers right and then yeah. 
you know, you also have the opportunity to invest in a traditional or Roth. You you're six, put your six grand in um, on yeah. top of that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's smart. The, the, my my issue has been that um, I like money now. Sure. <laughs> and so and so, like I I find that uh, I'll do a one seventy nine tax deduction on a piece of equipment. Um, before maxing out my business uh, um, contribution, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Just because, like, I'm looking at the numbers, going, well, if I I can put fifty grand in towards a, a Roth or sorry, a four hundred one k, or I could put fifty thousand dollars into a set of lenses that probably gets a thirty percent ROI annually, mm-hmm. and that's not something that the stock market can do because I, I attach all my four hundred one k and stocks to index funds. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm happy if I get 8% and I am happy. I'm really, if I can get 8%, I mean, hey, I'm stoked. Yeah. You know, every, but, uh, everybody wants eight, at least 8%. Yeah. But, but if I can get 30% of course, and offset that, that same tax amount, why wouldn't I do that for the rest of my life? Totally. And so that's, that's kind of where I'm at. But then, you know, it's just, it, it does come down to like, well, when you retire, you actually need some cash to pull out, you know? And so that's it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of different strategies for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so what else you got? Uh, you mentioned some real estate um, projects you got going yeah, on. Yeah. You know, over the last few years, I've been buying single family houses in my neighborhood. I don't have a lot. I got a couple, you know, and just I'll do a little bit of rehab, put them on the market. And that's kind of part of my retirement plan, not only for the cash flow and the appreciation and the deduction um, opportunities, but also just I, I am somebody that just constantly, I just like doing shit, you know, like I don't think you're not like, busy enough, Travis, when I don't, well, yeah. when I think about retirement, I'm not, I'm not like, well, I'm just going to sit around and do what I'm like, no, I want to be productive. I want to totally. be continuing, learn, continuing to learn and grow. And so owning a portfolio of like rental properties and being able to manage those. Are you managing is, them yourself? Yeah, I do. Great. Smart. And you know, even though I, I'm obviously very busy you know, the way I've sort of approached the class of rentals that I'm buying and the, the, what the renovations I'm doing and the type of rent I'm asking now, I've only been doing it for a few years, so I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I'm putting a quality of tenant into these places that they're just great people. Like we meet, I meet everybody who applies. Smart. They come look at the house. We have a conversation. I'm just asking what they're looking for. When I find that person that's just like I know is going to take care of the house well and steward the house well and not call me at 1 a.m. for like a burnt out light bulb, it's like, yeah, it's been it hasn't been that hard so far. That's awesome. How many properties do you have? I've got three rentals and then the house I own right now, which will eventually become another one. That's that's great, man. Are you doing thirty year uh, loans on them or, or fifteen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thirty. Yeah, might as well, right? It gets paid off eventually. I like both strategies. You know, mm-hmm. money is so cheap right now yeah, it um, is. that, and I'm not the only one that thinks this. A lot of people in the real estate industry are doing this, but it's just like you put your, you get your property, you get cheap debt, cheap good debt. Take the, take that cash flow and put it in a place where you're going to get more than your your you're going to save by paying the property down essentially. Yeah, no, that's smart. That's great. Well, cool. Uh, what, I, what one piece of advice do you have for creative starting out? Oh shit. That's a good question. <laughs> one piece of advice. Never stop asking questions. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And you know, when you're starting out, sometimes people are intimidated by 
the people around them and they think, hey, if I ask a question, they're going to think I don't know what I'm doing and then they're going to look down on me or they're not going to feel like we're at the same level. And it's such an and they're ego. Right. They're absolutely and it's, right. <laughs> it's such Just an kidding. ego death thing. I love, I mean, I can tell you you're a curious person. I get along with curious people. I love curious people. None of us know it all. Even like an expert in one industry, you know what I mean? Knows yeah. one little sliver of one little thing. And it's like, even an amazing DP, you throw him in a, you know, a situation where he's got to manage eight lobs and all, and it, you can only be good at so many things. So yeah. don't be afraid to ask questions. I love that. Yeah. One of my favorite um, stories is, uh, and I'll butcher it, but there's basically an economist in Europe somewhere. This is probably a hundred years ago. So that uh, there was an ox and there was like a town fair and they said, guess the weight of the ox. Right. And he wanted all the results from the townspeople. It was probably 400, you know, people that submitted, you know, the, the guess the weight of the ox. And he wanted the results to see if the average could beat the, you know, could beat the average person or, you know, and uh, so did the numbers, the ox weighed 1,323 pounds. Um, and the average of the 400 people was 1,322 pounds. It was one pound off from the weight of the ox. Wow. And, and my, the thing that I learned and take away from the story is that collectively, we are the most intelligent. Mm. Um, we're actually idiots on our, by ourselves, right? It's just mm -hmm. like individually, I'm an absolute idiot and I cannot possibly know everything about everything, but collectively, uh, we're intelligent. So ask questions and, and let the, let the community, uh, teach you. So true. I mean, what, sometimes I'll hop on Reddit and, you know, I'll click on something that I think I know a little bit about. And then in the comments, I'll see someone just dive deep <laughs> and you're just like, whoa, <laughs> I thought I knew a little bit about this, but I have I no, yeah, I don't know anything compared to like some people out there. And I, I, yeah. I find that encouraging. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Travis, thank you so much, man. I, I really appreciate you, uh, you jumping on today and, um, I, I hope that uh, we stay in touch and I, and I hope we can do some stuff in the future. Yeah, man. I had a blast chatting with you. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate of it. Of course. Yeah. We'll talk soon. All right. Later. Thank you guys so much for sticking around and coming back to the podcast. I won't leave you hanging, I promise. Lars Lynch, some guarantee. We'll see you next week. Yeah.